I hope you've turned your Bible to 1 Corinthians chapter 6, and uh, you'll really need to be paying attention to the words of Scripture this morning. Uh, last week, Paul <clears throat> was, uh, the Apostle Paul, was exercised, that's a kind word to say, about what was happening in the Corinthian church. And one of the things that I tried to bring out last week that, we, again, we need to grasp again, is that Paul was not as concerned with the very details of what they were doing wrong in the church as much he was, as he was concerned with the impact that those wrong things were having on the church, the body of Christ. Remember, we're the church. And he was even more concerned on what the world was thinking when they saw us as the church acting in totally inappropriate ways, at least inappropriate when it comes to how God designed us and what God uh, has made us to do and what the church is all about. The church, we're the church. The church are the people of God who have been called of God to be able to come together, to be built up together in the faith so that when we go out into the world, the fact that we're so different, many will be asking us for the reason for the hope that is within us. That's true. But also we'll be able to go out and tell other people for the reason, the hope that is in us and see others uh, become Christians. And they'll want to if they see the church really being the church. So now in chapter 6, Paul goes into a totally different problem. That's, and, and it's threatening the witness and the spiritual strength of the church in Corinth. And uh, I'll, in a, partway through the sermon, we'll stop at one point and I'll paint a picture for you so you can see how it's doing that. But here's what was happening. There was a lawsuit between two men, two Christian men in the church. Most of the Corinthians would have been not been uh, wealthy, so it's likely the ones suing were pretty well off. They were self-protective, and therefore doing things on their own as if none, it was none of the business of the assembly. Haven't you heard people say that? Well, church is church, and the world's the world, and you know they don't meet. Uh, they don't, but uh, this person, these two people especially, were saying, it's none of the church's business what we do, and they're in a lawsuit. Now, as I've already said, Paul's concern is not the specifics of what is happening, but the impact of the lawsuit, the impact it was having on the whole church in the eyes of the unbelieving community watching the church. I think Tom Wright's statement here is worth it right now. He writes, what matters in the eyes of the world is that a public dispute between Christians is a sign that Christians are really no different from everybody else. And 1 Corinthians is all about the fact that Christians are different from everybody else. And if they're not, if we're not, we might as well not bother calling ourselves Christians in the first place. Pretty strong statement, but it's true. Now, Roman law had well-delineated standards for lawsuits. And it's clear that Roman society, you're not going to believe this, but it's true, Roman society sued much more than we do. That's true. 
Now, Paul is not talking about criminal cases here. He teaches in Romans that the secular law courts are there to handle such. Christians are to obey the laws, we're to obey the laws of the land unless they go against one's biblical conscience. But the problem is, today, we become a nation of rights. All this week, I watched a little more news than I should have, and I started to count, it got out of hand. How many times people were saying, but this is my right, I have the right to do this. Now, to ask someone to give up their rights will usually be met with outright anger. But as Christians, we no longer have any rights. Instead, we have God, and that should be enough. So look in your Bibles, verse 1. It reads, Paul says, If any of you has a dispute with another. He's talking to the church now. We have to really take this personally, and you need to be thinking all the way through this part of the sermon about your part of the, if you're part of this church, this is speaking to all of us. If any of you has a dispute with another, another Christian, he says, he's really being strong here. Do you dare to take it before the ungodly for judgment instead of before the Lord's people? I mean, he's really upset. And then in verse 2, he says, or do you not know? Now, if you were here last week, you know when I found that phrase last week, I said it several times. Do you not know? Do you not know? Do you not know? Paul uses it nine times in, uh, in the passage, six times in this particular passage. And what he's saying is, you know this, don't you? I was there for a year and a half. I taught you all this. And so he's saying, you already know, don't you, that the Lord's people will judge the world. Now, I haven't used this phrase for a very long time. Paul was an eschatological man, an eschatological man. And some of you are thinking, what's that? Eschatology is what the Bible teaches about the end times. We know what's to come. We know how it's all going to be wrapped up. And Paul lived in light of that eschatology. He was an eschatological man. He lived his now life in light of what was going to happen in the end, not, in, not because of what was happening right now. And we're all to be like that. We're all to live our lives now that we're Christians. We live lives as Christians knowing what the end is, which is better than anything that could even be imagined. So it doesn't ultimately matter what happens to us here, although we do need to learn how to live in the middle of the chaos of the world. And so Paul is saying here, and if you are to judge the world, that we won't go into the details of that, but Jesus comes again, we're going to be judging the world. Are you not competent to judge trivial cases? Now notice the word trivial. It also translates as small things in some of, some of your Bibles. And this is where the disputes often go wrong. What do you mean trivial? This is important to me. Now, there is nothing we could gain or lose in a lawsuit that really matters compared to what we are receiving now and will receive in eternity. Now, I know from experience what Paul is talking about. Oh, the details are not important. Many of you know that I was in a circumstance once where a Christian friend 
caused Val and I to lose our home, our cars, and all our money. I was taken advantage of by my Christian friend. And he was also my employee of a business I owned. I was a stockbroker, but I owned a business that I bought a bookstore, and he was running it for me. And I gave him a lot of license uh, to my bank accounts, and he, in essence, bankrupted me by literally, and I must say unskillfully, manipulating my business bank accounts without my knowledge so that I owed more money than I was worth. Now, some of my Christian friends approached me. I was fairly well-known at that time in the community, and uh, uh, this was, the store was well-attended. A lot of people came to the store, and it closed, of course. And, and so some of my Christian friends approached me and suggested strongly that I sue him and take everything he has. He had a nice home and a large family. And the reason, they said, that I deserved it and he didn't. And so some said, sue the... I won't use the word. (laughs) But I didn't. Instead, we met with the church leaders, and he confessed to what he did, and I took the loss. And what's the result? Here I am. I mean... If, if that hadn't have happened, I won't go into all the details. I've done it before in a longer uh, story of it. If that hadn't happened, I would have never moved. We would have never moved to Florida. And by the way, we never lost our friendship in the middle of all this. The North Park Community Chapel is the name of the church, London, Ontario. What an incredible uh, church and what a help that they were. So God worked out for good through what seemed a great loss but instead eventually became a much greater gain. And so here he is again in verse 3. Paul's back at it again. Do you not know? He's so frustrated that we will judge angels, fallen angels, eschatologically a a long ways from now. So how much more the things of this life? Therefore, if you have disputes about such matters, do you ask for a ruling from those whose way of life is scorned in the church? I like the way the New Living Translation uh, translates verse 4. If you have legal disputes about such matters, why go outside to outside judges who are not respected by the church? And then Paul says, I say this to shame you. Is it possible that there's nobody among you wise enough to judge a dispute between believers? Now, this is very ironic, very sarcastic, because they have been saying that they were, remember we studied this, that they were taking on the wisdom of the world, the Sophia wisdom, and they were wiser than Paul, and they were slandering Paul. And so now he's saying, since they said he was wiser than him, is it not possible there's nobody among you using the same, they would have heard the Greek word, you see, the same word that he had already talked about, who are not wise enough to judge a dispute between believers. But instead, one brother, Christian brother, takes another Christian brother to court, and this in front of unbelievers. Now, you might be thinking, well, Paul, aren't you making kind of a big deal out of something that's Shouldn't be made that big a deal out? Well, here's a picture. I want you to see the picture. It's an archaeological find. And I know it doesn't seem to be anything, but it's what they call a a Bema place. Uh, Think of the uh, law courts 
in downtown Sarasota, the law courts in, uh, in uh, Bradenton. Uh, this is where they heard cases and had trials. And I know it's just a bunch of, uh, of uh, bricks and stuff it looks like there, but it was very public. It was outdoors, and there were judges who had tremendous oratory powers, and then they would hold cases there, and they would have, uh, they would have trials. Now, when we think of a trial, we think of 12 people in a box over here listening and making the decision. But a small trial would have 200 of those jurors. A medium-sized trial would have 400 jurors. And a large trial would have even an excess of 1,000 jurors that were making up their mind. And see, and the, and the whole area in Corinth, everybody came there every day to watch this. This was better than television, and they didn't have a television. <laughs> you know, I mean, this was their entertainment. And they heard great oratory, and they heard big arguments and all of this. And then in the middle of all of this, of all these people watching, here's a couple of Christian men who have come to ask these judges and all of these jurors to settle a dispute. And you know what people are saying. That's those those two, are the, they belong to that Christian group, that new cult or whatever it is. That says, they say this guy died and he rose from the dead or something. They worship a dead guy. And uh, they must be just, we thought they were supposed to be different. They're just like us. And that's what Paul is so upset about. Everybody in Corinth knew this was happening, not just everybody in the church. Uh, Jesus said, it's recorded in John 13, 35. He said, your love for one another, he's talking to us, your love for one another will prove to the world that you're my disciples. I mean, the opposite is unspeakable. Your lack of love for one another will just prove to the world that you're irrelevant. No, no, he's saying, your love for one another will prove to the world that you're my disciples. When I lost all of that money and everything, you can't tell you how many non-believers in business came and asked me directly, what is wrong with you? Are you crazy or something? Why did you let him get away with this? And then I would have a chance to explain the gospel and what happened and, and how good God is. You see... What Paul is saying is they should have cared more about how they look to the unsaved world rather than trying to recover the small, trivial things involved. Now, look back at your scripture, and we'll read quite a bit. Verse 7, Paul says, The very fact that you have lawsuits among you means that you have been completely defeated already. Why not rather be wronged? Why not rather be cheated? Instead, you yourselves cheat and do wrong, and, and you do this to your brothers and sisters. Or do you not know that the wrongdoers that you see at that Bema place will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, He's, he's talking about the community all around the church, nor, or, nor men who have sex with men, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor slanderers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And then he takes a deep breath, and he says, and that is what some of you were. That's a really profound statement. I mean, they came out of that community. Every one of those sinful activities some of these Corinthians were part of, every one of them, no exceptions. 
but you're, you're washed now, he said. You uh, were sanctified. You're being sanctified. You were justified just as if you'd never sinned in the name of the Lord, whose name is Jesus, who is the Christ, the Messiah, and by the Spirit of our God, because we all have the Holy Spirit and we become Christians. We'll come back to some of that in a minute, but what Paul is saying here is that when one is justified or saved or born again, when you're justified, when you're born again, God sees us as righteous, even though we're not righteous. He sees us that way. So what Paul is saying here is that when one is justified, their unbiblical practices change, making their salvation obvious to everyone. Now, certainly, this should make everyone in the church in Corinth examine themselves and be sure of their salvation. They have been thoroughly taught by Paul for a year and a half, and not just in Sundays or uh, Saturdays, but every day he was among them, and he didn't want them to become targets of God's discipline. So let's go back to the list. Look at verse 9. Verse 9 says, Neither the sexually immoral, we talked about that last week, that's the word porneia, which means all kinds of terrible things, nor idolaters, those who worship false gods and lots of other things, nor adulterers, those who are married who commit adultery, nor men who have sex with men. That's a very difficult sentence, and I'll take it apart in just a moment on purpose. Nor thieves, nor the greedy. I like the word thieves. It's where we get our word kleptomaniac from. Nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor slanderers, and they were slandering Paul, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. So as much as I would prefer not to, let's talk about homosexuality for a moment. There are those who twist the scriptures to say that the Bible says nothing about homosexuality or they point out that Jesus did not say anything about it. They're wrong on both counts. The Bible has much to say about it, not only in these verses, but throughout the Old Testament. Jesus did not use the word, that's true, but endorse those Old Testament books clearly saying that God condemns any form of homosexual relationships. Now, you saw this in, in my version of the Bible. It's very difficult to uh, translate. Uh, he says, nor men who have sex with men. The word men is a different word. So the first word men means a homosexual who actually is a male prostitute. So men, a homosexual who have sex with men, and the word men here is a picture of, I don't even want to mention it, of all kinds of things that homosexual people do. It's a totally different word. So it's, this is a very strong statement, and it's important for us to think about it uh, today because of all that's going on in our world. And uh, so, as I said already, uh, the, the Bible has much to say about it not only in the verses, but through the Old Testament. And uh, there are those who say that the Bible says nothing about it, and it's not true. Now, listen to this. This might surprise you. We see how bad things are in our society now, and I've heard people say, it's never been this bad before. Well, here's what it was like when Paul was there. Homosexuality was rampant in the ancient world. Out of the first 15 
14 of the first 15 Roman emperors were bisexual or homosexual. At the very time that Paul wrote what we're studying, Nero was emperor. Nero castrated a very young boy named Sporus and then married him with a full ceremony, brought him to the palace with a great procession and made the boy his wife. So there's nothing new under the sun. Later, the emperor lived with another man and Nero was declared to be the other man's wife. Now, there are those who say that homosexuality is caused by genetics. Now, even if that were true, it does not mean that we are exempt from God's standards or that we are not accountable to God for our behavior. I don't like to quote too much, but this is an important quote. One writer on the subject says this. Those predisposed to alcoholism may have to impose more severe restrictions on themselves, such as teetotaling, than others might. But that does not mean that drunkenness for them becomes morally acceptable. Those predisposed to homosexual practices may have to monitor themselves more carefully too, but that scarcely turns sin into a divinely ordained lifestyle. Now, I must add that there are even evangelical church congregations that are very, very public and large that endorse and encourage even homosexuality. Their condemnation will be severe. God created us male and female. Genesis chapter 1, verse 27, so God created human beings in his own image. That should just excite us there. And in the image of God, he created them, us, male and female, he created them, human beings, us. On the other hand, and I, I don't want to be misunderstood here, but that we must be careful that those who have such predispositions are not uncomfortable here. What do you mean by that? Well, we've always had men and women in the church with such problems. They have always been welcomed the same as alcoholics and adulterers and drug addicts and others. But they must not practice their sin. They come here, we're the hospital. We'll show them a better way. We'll help them. We'll encourage them. And in verse 11, it says, and I've already read it, but this is so important, and that is what some of you were. So we need to be really careful uh, when we point fingers to the world, uh, and we need to make sure in the church that we're handling these things in a godly way, in a loving way, in a repairing way, in a, in a compassionate way. But no longer, and that's what some of you were, but no longer. Now, here's why you can change. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 17. What this means is that those who become Christians become new persons. Some of your Bibles actually use the word creators, creations, and that's correct. Become new creations. We are not the same anymore for the old life is gone and a new life has begun. I mean, when we become a Christian, our life completely is changed. We have the Holy Spirit and we can, uh, we're no longer uh, victims of our sin. 
That's why we need one another. So we must become what we now are. And the difference between a true Christian and someone who attends church and is only outwardly religious is that those who previously struggled with any of the sins Paul listed are now repentant and heartbroken when they are tempted by these sins. And the true Christian will ask the bravest question of all, help, help. I've got a problem with drinking. I've got a problem with uh, sexual orientation. I've got a problem with this. I've got a problem with that. I need help because I know what the Bible says. And that's where Paul lists what it means to be a Christian. But you were washed. They were spiritually cleansed by God. Baptism is a symbol of this cleansing. It's a wonderful symbol of somebody who's got dirt all over them and now it's washed away. And then it says, you are sanctified, you are justified. Now, we've already talked about these words a lot. The word sanctified is an ongoing sort of plural word. You are being sanctified. So when you're justified, when you are born again, right away the Holy Spirit comes into your life, and now you are being changed until you become perfect in in eternity. You'll never be perfect in this life but you'll be able to live a new life. You'll be able to live without those sins capturing you any longer. And of course, God has judged us not guilty. (laughs) And, And it's in the name of the Lord, whose name is Jesus, and who is the Christ, the Messiah, and by the Spirit of our God. Now, there was a saying going around in the Corinthian church suggesting the saved could do whatever they wanted. After all, God is in the forgiving business, isn't he? They were technically right and practically wrong. Satan loves extremes. He just loves extremes. If he can't get you with extreme legalism, then he'll try extreme license. Just do whatever you want, whatever seems right in your eyes. God will forgive you. Augustine in the 4th century, if you've never read Augustine, you should. The City of God is the main book. Augustine in the 4th century said that we should do whatever we want to do if we truly love God. That's a statement from Augustine. What he meant was that if we truly are filled with the Spirit, we'll only want to please God. Some took what he said to mean that since we are Christians, there is no longer anything that we cannot freely indulge in. And he didn't mean that at all. But there are some that think that way. I've actually met people in this church over the years who have admitted to me that they're doing certain sins. And, uh, but before we do it, we always pray and we know God will forgive us. And so they had a saying in the church. Here's the saying. Food for the body and the body for food. Sex is for the body, and the body for sex. That was a saying in the Corinthian church, and Paul was going to handle it. So what they really meant by that is that since it is natural to feel hungry and eat food to stop the hunger, it's also natural to have sexual cravings and satisfy them any way we desire. That's our society today. They were saying that our temporal bodies have no effect on our spiritual lives. But God created the body, and Christians are to hold the physical body in high esteem. Paul taught that sex was a good thing, but only within the bounds of a marriage between a man and a woman. 
No exceptions. So Paul starts to handle this now. Here's his thinking, verse 12. So watch in your Bible. He starts off by saying, I have the right to do anything. Now he's saying that they're saying that. So let me read it that way. You say in the church, you have people saying, I have the right to do anything. And then Paul says, but not everything is beneficial. And then Paul says, I have the right to do anything, but I'll not be mastered by anything. 1 Corinthians 9.27, many of you know that's what I consider my life verse. Uh, I beat my body and make it my slave so that after I preach to others, I myself will not be disqualified for the prize. We do take part in our behavior. And in the same way that an athlete will work harder and harder to become better and better and purer at his game, so we as Christians are to be men and women who uh, practice Christian disciplines and really become accountable to those clear Christian disciplines so that we will grow in Christ and leave behind a good legacy. And so Paul goes on in verse 13, and he says, you say, food for the stomach and the stomach for food. And then he says, it's a strange saying, and God will destroy them both. He's talking about, well, this won't be a problem. Don't worry, we're going to have food in heaven. There's, it uh, talks about uh, uh, great feasts in heaven. I'm looking forward to them. And, uh, but they won't put on any weight whatsoever. And, <laughs> and uh, so Paul says, the body, however, is not meant for sexual immorality, but for the Lord and the Lord for the body. And verse 14 says, by his power... God raised the Lord from the dead, and he'll raise us also. Jesus was raised. His body was raised from the dead. And we'll be raised, and our bodies will be raised. And later in chapter 15, we will study a description of our new bodies in detail. And then in verse 15, here he is again, verse 15. Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ himself? Now, I want you to really think about this because this is really powerful. Shall I then take the members of Christ, shall I then take my body and unite them with a prostitute? That was happening in the church. That was just common in the society. And Paul, you can almost hear him, never. And then here it is again. Do you not know? that he who unites himself with a prostitute is one with her body, for it is said in the book of Genesis that the two will become one flesh, a picture of marriage. But whoever is united with the Lord is one with him in spirit. In other words, he's saying that our marriage itself is a picture of the gospel. It's a picture of our relationship with God. And it's a real relationship. And in 1 Corinthians 12, 27 uh, uh, Paul wrote, now you are the body of Christ. The, you is plural. So he's talking to the church. So we are the body of Christ. And each one of us is a part of the body. And that's why I use the phrase often of a, or the picture of a jigsaw puzzle. Uh, very simply put, you put a jigsaw puzzle all together and leave one piece out. That's the first thing people see. What's wrong with the puzzle? And so we are all part of God's jigsaw puzzle. And when people look at us, he should, they should see a group of people, of family members, 
that truly love one another, even at their own cost. Now, I'm always talking about body life, but when anyone in the body sins sexually or does any other sin, it's as if the whole body were involved. Therefore, to commit any sexual sin with your body is a misrepresentation of the God who has saved us, a misrepresentation of God's love for we whom he created to have healthy sexual relationships within marriage, a relationship that reminds us of our relationship with God. Marriage is to be a lifelong partnership, friendship, between a man and a woman who are biologically very different. In marriage, the sexual relationship pictures God's plan to defeat loneliness and populate the world and also pictures the glory of God. Sexual immorality is a sin that denigrates God's view of our bodies. And so what should we do about it? Well, verse 18 tells us clearly, flee from sexual immorality. That's what we do about it. All other sins a person commits are outside the body, but whoever sins sexually sins against their own body. You have to think now. I'm sinning against my own body. God owns my body. My body is part of God. I have a relationship with God. I prayed this morning with, before the service that how much I like to just say the word Father. Father. We're children of God. We need to have more respect for ourselves than that. Animals don't have souls, but do have instincts, and they react to those inbred instincts. Animals know by instinct what is good for them and what is not good, but animals don't know that they know. God made us with souls and the ability to know that we know. That is what it means to be made in God's image. So when we give into unbiblical sexual desires, we're acting like animals rather than godly men and women. So what do we do? Flee. Actually, the, the, I'm not going to use all the words for Greek grammar, but it means continue to flee. Never stop fleeing. If you're watching a TV program that turns sexual, turn it off. If you're reading a magazine and come across some advertisement or story that causes you to be aroused, throw it away. If you're with someone of the opposite sex and feel attracted inappropriately, leave immediately without explanation. Don't try to just ignore that scene or not look at that ad or control that urge. Flee. Anything less than flee will end in defeat. 1 Thessalonians chapter 4 reads this way in two verses, three verses. It is God's will that you should be sanctified. That's really important. It's God's will that you should be continually growing spiritually. That you should avoid sexual immorality of every type. That each of you should learn to control, see our responsibility? Each of you should learn to control his own body in a way that is holy and honorable. Not in passionate lust like the heathen who do not know God. We are able to control our own bodies. It's a fruit of the Spirit. We have the Holy Spirit. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness. What's the last one? Self-control. We're able to make right choices. 
100% of the time. Well, we won't always make right choices 100% of the time, but we should be making right choices more and more often as we grow older and older chronologically, therefore growing spiritually. There's to be no sexual relationship outside of a marriage between a man and a woman. In the Bible, celibacy is a solution to all sexual temptations outside of marriage, whether of the homosexual or heterosexual kind, because both are just as wrong. And then here's Paul again, verse 19. Oh, he's getting so frustrated. Do you not know? You know this, that your bodies are temples of the Holy Spirit. I mean, we should be excited about that, but in this case, it should cause some in Corinth at least to be really grieving. Do you not know that your bodies are temples of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you've received from God? You are not your own. You were bought at a price, and what an expensive purchase it was. It cost the blood of Jesus Christ on the cross. Therefore, he says, honor God with your bodies. Now, the Jewish temple contained the Holy of Holies, the dwelling place of God. And we are now that temple. As we meet together here, the Holy Spirit is present not only in each of our lives, but in a way when we meet together to be built up together in a way that won't happen when we're alone. That's how much we need to meet together and we need each other. Uh, God dwells in our temple in the person of the Holy Spirit, but it'll also empower us to do God's will. I can't do just whatever I want with my body because it doesn't belong to me. It belongs to God, and I should want to glorify him. God has purchased my body through the cross, the blood shed for me by Jesus. I'm no longer a slave to the lusts of my flesh, but I'm instead God's child who has been freed from the power of sin and enabled to live a godly life. I no longer have to sin. I can always make the right choice, but sometime I'm going to need help. Sometime I'm going to need others around me, other pictures, other pieces of the, uh, of the puzzle around me to help me because I, I'm so weak in some areas. So don't ever, ever isolate yourself. So here's what we should have learned this morning. We should have learned that God has a plan for our lives that will glorify him and please us for all of eternity. We should be learning that wholehearted obedience to the scriptures, commitment to the church, the body of Christ is the Bible name for church, a commitment that includes loving and serving one another. That is the only thing that will fulfill us. You see, we need each other. Romans chapter 12, verse 5. In Christ, we who are many form one body, and each member belongs to all the others. And I just add, and when one of those members decides to abandon, it leaves a hole in the whole picture. To love one another, we must know one another. The best way to be known is through our participation and service as we use our gifts and lives within the church family. This kind of fellowship happens all the time in our midst. But I know it is still possible to come and take up a seat and take in information and never experience true fellowship. Don't do it. Don't do it. Change your priorities to include the church, no matter what it costs you. 
If we isolate and keep secrets, then we will fail to experience the joy of our salvation. Well, it's time that I end. And I'm going to end with a a few verses from the book of Philippians, uh, from Paul's pen, in the Message Bible. I seldom use the Message Bible, but this is one place where it really is well done. Philippians 2, 14, 15, and 16. Do everything readily and cheerfully. My wife would say, would you read that again? (laughs) Do everything readily and cheerfully. No bickering, no second-guessing allowed. Go out into the world uncorrupted, a breath of fresh air in this squalid and polluted society. Provide people with a glimpse of good living and of the living God. Carry the light-giving message into the night so that Paul's writing this, remember, so I'll have good cause to be proud of you on the day that Christ returns. You'll be living proof that I didn't go to all this work for nothing. Let's pray together. Ah, Father... It's really hard, even disturbing sometimes to teach these particular scriptures, but we have to so that we really know what you require of us. And you never require anything of us that we can't accomplish together. So help us not to be, uh, it's a hackneyed phrase, but Lone Ranger Christians. It helps us to be uh, together Christians who make the priority of our life doing all we can to make relationships within the church that will help us individually and we can help others individually. And so, Father, I pray that you will continue. You're doing so much among us lately in our church. I'm so thankful for it. And help us to become more and more one another people than we ever thought we could and to find that true joy that we're promised by having a relationship with the Lord Jesus. And Father, I just uh, think about now people who may be right here or online and they haven't ever given their lives to Christ. And some it might be because they struggle with things that they think that they could never overcome. Uh, There's no sin that can't be overcome. And there's no sin, no matter how much pleasure it gives, that knowing Jesus fully uh, will give even more pleasure. And so I pray that if there's anyone listening uh, on the internet or watching on the internet or here that they don't yet know Jesus, that they would simply bow their head and say, Dear Jesus, I want that joy. I want to be part of that puzzle. I want to fill in my space in that puzzle. And I want to be part of the body of Christ. Please save me. Thank you for dying for my sins because I really need your help. And then, Father, um, fill me with your spirit and help me to grow as I become part of the body of Christ, the church. In Jesus' name, amen.